0: So today's lecture is probably one of my favorite because I think it's the future direction of nonprofits. We've talked about low profits and hybrid organizations and how do you incorporate an entrepreneurial component, not only in terms of revenue generating, but just as a whole organization. Nonprofits need to be entrepreneurial, and so we have... One of the world's experts. Professor Lenskowski spent several years in public service, worked with the Bush administration and the Clinton administration in this arena of helping communities thrive and helping organizations thrive. And so he was the director and CEO of multiple federal programs of the public and nonprofit sector. And so I'll give you the floor to uh, help us I don't learn know about that business about expert. But anyway, I'll do my best. Good morning, everyone nice to be here this morning and I'm going to try and explain in about an hour this topic of social entrepreneurship. The way we're going to do this is start with a question. Who can recognize this fellow? Anybody? Shout it out. By the way, you can interrupt me with questions too. Steve Jobs, what do we know him for? Apple, how many of you have an Apple product, iPhone, iPad, virtually the entire class? No surprise there. So is this man a social entrepreneur? Explain why you think he's a social entrepreneur. He's single-handedly innovative technology. What does he do socially, though? I mean, I know he's an entrepreneur. We'll concede that. What's social about him? jump in he's like completely impacted like our social and like how we communicate as like all of you are using apple i mean can anybody imagine what you do without your iphone or ipad here's an idea it just came to me for the next week do not use your iphone okay deal no no okay <laughs> so you know, that's the case anybody think he's not a social entrepreneur go ahead I know that his products impacted us socially as a global environment. I don't know that his policy impacted us socially. I don't know how much of what he earned he put back out there. I would phrase it slightly differently. What is his intention to be a social entrepreneur, right? Did he really think when he said, "Okay, I'm going to come up with a Macintosh computer, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to really have an impact on the lives of a bunch of students 30 years later at Indiana University. There's little evidence to suggest he did. Both of the biographies suggest that Steve Jobs was definitely an entrepreneur. He really wanted to create something, but what he mostly wanted to create was a new product. The product he was looking at was to create a new and more elegant way of computing that it might also have social impacts, was not exactly what he was trying to accomplish. He was trying to create a computer that really jumped ahead of the existing products. There's little evidence that during his lifetime, Steve Jobs was at all philanthropic, unless some of his gifts were made anonymously. Apple Computer compared to its arch rival Microsoft, Apple Inc compared to Microsoft, devoted very little of his funding or time during his tenure as CEO to philanthropy and various other corporate social efforts. One of the few things we know that he helped underwrite, and Apple helped underwrite, was a design <coughs> contest run by a very famous organization called the Bauhaus School, if anyone studied art or architecture renowned international organization, but it specializes in industrial design. That's what the prize was, not for changing the world, not for having an impact on society. Well, one of the dilemmas in thinking about social entrepreneurship is we're bringing together two concepts. One is being entrepreneurial, innovative. The other is having a social Impact. I'm using social very loosely here. There's no doubt at all that Steve Jobs was an entrepreneur, but was he really trying to have a social impact as opposed to his product ultimately having a social impact? Another example of this from historical time was Henry Ford. Everybody knows what a Ford is, yes? What was his great innovation? Assembly line. The assembly line. Why was that so important? Well, before we mass-produced automobiles, which is what an assembly line enables you to do, buying a car was a bit like buying a Rolls Royce or a Lamborghini. It was a handcrafted kind of thing, which means it was pretty expensive. And the ordinary worker, the ordinary middle-class person, couldn't afford a car. What Henry Ford did. Was through mass production, lower the price of automobiles. It used to be said, you could have any Ford you, Ford in any color you wanted, as long as it was black. That's one of the things. When you mass produce, you don't put a lot of variety into it. How, did that have a social impact? It helped alleviate the class separation between those that previous, afford uh, the car prior to the assembly line. Okay, so more the people's car. So there was less and horses want to go so far and so fast. OK, so far and so fast is one of the things I'm driving in. So now, if you were living in Bloomington and there was a job in Indianapolis, you could actually think if you had a car, well, before they tore up 37, you could think if you had a car of actually driving up to work, right? Could you do that with a horse? Well, I guess you could, but it'll get pretty cold and wet in the winter, and you better start early. So mobility important. What else? Well, a famous historian pointed out that the Ford motor car was a contributing factor to the sexual revolution of the 1920s. How do you get that? Anybody know? If you ever see a picture, I didn't put a picture of Mr. Ford out. He doesn't look like a guy who's into wild parties. But how did his product Contribute to the sexual revolution of the 1920s. Anyone want to take a guess at that? I'm guessing because like younger couples could take the car out to like abandoned places. Very good. That's exactly it. So before cars were easily accessible, and you wanted to spend some time with your sweetheart, where would you do it? In the house. There used to be rooms. Anybody ever been in a room called a parlor? was a place, it was kind of a sitting room, usually up front. And so, whether it's a young couple or others, you'd meet in the parlor and converse, often under the watching eyes of a parent. But now, as you said, you know what the car does? I don't need to sit in this parlor. I could get the car, and we could go out in some quiet, secluded place and have a high level discussion of advanced mathematics or something, right? <laughs> okay, social impact, yes. But do you think Henry Ford was really aiming to do that? Probably not. So does their intent for their innovation determine if they're a social entrepreneur? Yes. About it? Yeah. So would that mean that if we look at the creation of the actual Volkswagen itself, that was meant to be a social revolution? It was meant to be the people's What does Volt mean? right, oh. no way, and then people. People, mm. Yeah, it was designed actually to promote mass travel within Germany, a whole set of highways, and so on. And 10 matters, I'll explain in a minute. But these are a few of the definitions of social entrepreneurship, and you don't have to write these down, but I just want to emphasize some things. Ashoka is one of the principal organizations of social entrepreneurs. They're individuals, number one. You need a real person. Now, a person could operate within an organization, but it's got to be somebody whose idea it is. The idea has to be an innovative solution, and it needs to address a pressing and important social problem. Then this talks about characteristics. Second bullet, rather than leaving societal needs to the government or business sectors, I'm going to make this distinction a bit. We're not talking about government or business entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurs look for something that's going to solve a problem on a large scale, system-wide, change, and then spread. Another definition, but you'll see many of the same concepts. Paul Light is a public management expert who's written frequently about this. Let's get to the chase. So I've tried to simplify these into my own definition social entrepreneurship is a means of innovating to solve a social problem what's a social problem something that affects like a mass amount of people people. poverty illiteracy lack of privacy all sorts of things right we would consider social problems and then the point i've added in a financially sustainable way in other words It's not just an innovation that's here today and gone tomorrow, but it seeks to change something, addressing a social problem, in a lasting way. Social entrepreneurship is one type of entrepreneurship. We have other types of entrepreneurship. Government entrepreneurship, and yes, despite what you may have concluded from the recently ended election campaign, government can be entrepreneurial. Government entrepreneurship aims to solve a political problem. Let me give you one of the most famous examples of government entrepreneurship. President Kennedy, in the early 1960s, vowed to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. How come? I mean, didn't he have anything better to do? What was the political problem he was addressing? This is a battle between us and Russia. Exactly right. We were in the Cold War. President Kennedy, actually, one of the themes in his election campaign was that the United States was falling behind the Soviet Union in missiles and space technology, and so the political problem, in other words, appealing to people who supported his position, was to challenge the government to put a man on the moon. Can anybody else think of a political problem that government is... Successfully addressed. I don't know if this would necessarily be political or if it would fall under social, but FDR's New Deal to get us out of the yeah. Well, I was going to use a very specific one of great concern to me, since I reached the magic age of 70 in March, and when you turn 70, you are required to get what from the federal government? Anybody want to know? You've got to start taking Social Security checks. Right? New Deal innovation. In 1935, the plight of senior citizens was a major national issue. President Roosevelt actually had some political opponents who promised to share the wealth with the elderly. But he and his advisors were worried that a kind of proposed scheme would short circuit the recovery from the depression. So they came up with the social security system we know today. Business entrepreneurship aims to solve a market problem or create a market. So Henry Ford, the market problem is people can't afford their cars. Steve Jobs, IBM computers are too clunky. They don't do enough. Anybody else think of an example of business entrepreneurship? I mean, both government entrepreneurship can have social effects, but their intentions are somewhat different. Business entrepreneurship, I'm going to talk in a little bit about the driverless car. How many of you are looking forward to your first driverless Anybody ever been in a driverless car? Anybody expect they will be before you reach my advanced age? Think a minute before we get there. Social impact or not? If so, what are they? And often on social entrepreneurs, pragmatically, <coughs> meaning they are looking for what works, use the techniques of both government and business, not just the kinds of things that nonprofits do, combined with <coughs> ways to address a problem successfully. So here are the questions I'm going to try to address. Is social entrepreneurship a new way of addressing persistent social problems? What are its characteristics and how do they differ from other ways of addressing social problems? We've been talking about social entrepreneurship for maybe 20 years now. What has it accomplished and what are the challenges it faces? Let me make some distinctions. First of all, social entrepreneurship may involve philanthropy, but it's different from philanthropy. Philanthropy consists of donating time or money to help address one or another social problem. Philanthropy can be very important in stages of social entrepreneurship, but we've been doing philanthropy for thousands of years. It's different, it's not necessarily innovative, there's nothing wrong with year in, year out, giving money to the American Red Cross or the American Cancer Society or Indiana University. That's my pitch for the day, but it is not Necessarily innovative. Social entrepreneurship is not business as usual. The pharmaceutical industry, for example, is a business that addresses all sorts of social problems. How? Creating medication specific. Yeah. So instead of facing a long period of illness or having to endure major medical attention of doctors, you might be able just to go on a, a course of treatment. Again, we've had pharmaceutical companies, we've had other companies whose products have addressed social needs for quite some time. Adam Smith, the famous economist who wrote The Wealth of Nations, wrote that most successful entrepreneurs do have to respond to one or another social need. What a market is, a market is an expression of various kinds of needs or anticipated needs. That's business as usual. What's different about social entrepreneurship is it combines elements that didn't work together before. It's not corporate social responsibility in the traditional sense. Many corporations are very generous with their time, their money, with loaned employees, with all sorts of things in their community. And again, that's very valuable. But it's not quite the same as innovating to solve a social problem. Ready to distinguish social entrepreneurship is not simply a government program, although government funding may be involved. With the White House, there is an Office of Social Innovation. One of my former students is the director of it. And it's not just President Obama. When I worked for President Bush, we had something very similar, though we probably called it something different. Names change, but functions remain. So government has been interested in social innovation. There are lots of government programs out there that contribute to it, but again, it's different. And social entrepreneurship can occur in nonprofit settings, but also in for-profit settings. There's a blurring of the lines, as you will see. Again, to some degree, social entrepreneurship has elements that are quite old within both nonprofits and for-profits. We've had what we call a social enterprise for quite a while. Some of you may have bought clothing or furniture or other things, kitchen utensils, from Goodwill Industries. Why was Goodwill Industries founded to create a department stores of used goods. Is that the reason? I don't know if this was their original excuse. They hire disabled. Employees. That is very good. As part of it, it was founded around World War One by a minister named Helms to try and create a new way of helping people with disabilities. What was new about it? Well, instead of just giving them money, traditional philanthropy, or maybe there were government programs then, but giving them a social security check or something like that, what they do is hire them, train them, get them to produce, to repair furniture, clothing, whatever, and then sell it and generate income. So today, most people, when they think about goodwill, think about the front side of it, the department stores. won't realize that behind that are a lot of people who are benefiting on uh, their personal lives from the organization. So we've always had charities that sell goods and services to aid their social missions. We're hearing about debt a minute ago with colleges and universities. When did colleges and universities start charging tuition? Well, I'm a graduate of Harvard, which was founded in the early 17th century, and they charge tuition. So again, and that's where the root of the debt problem is. How do you pay for the tuition? Well, you may have to borrow. So, we'll go back a long way, and we see some of this in today's social entrepreneurship. One of the most interesting examples, that is an example of both corporate social responsibility and social entrepreneurship, is something the soda companies have done in developing countries. Most of you have had a bottle of soda or a glass of soda from time to time. What's the principal ingredient in it? carbonated water, or just water, right? Carbon will pump in. So if I wanted to create the Coca-Cola bottling factory in some developing country where the water supply is pretty polluted, what do I have to do? Import my water from some other country? I may have to do an environmental project and clean up the water supply to keep the price of bottling soda as low as possible. Well, what else have I done when I've cleaned up the water supply? Well, I may have reduced the incidence of dysentery. Maybe I've made the water more suitable for mothers to use with formula for newborn infants. Lots of health and social benefits. Corporate social responsibility, yes. companies doing that. But social entrepreneurship, yeah. They're bringing together business purpose with a social purpose and then in philanthropy we see especially among the so-called dot-com millionaires the high-tech people who like all of you have made their first billion before they're 40 are particularly interested in this so smart in technological innovation why can't we do better in addressing social problems one of the most interesting most of you, if not all of you, have Facebook accounts. Founder of Facebook, about a year ago, Mark Zuckerberg announced that rather do traditional charitable giving through a foundation or out of his checkbook, he instead was going to put all his money, a mere $44 billion at the time, probably more now, into a limited liability corporation. LLC a business whose purpose would be to address social problems. So, In other words, he wasn't making Facebook 2. He was going to put this money into a company that would address social problems. What did he have in mind? Well, we still aren't sure. Most of what he's done is pretty traditional philanthropy right now, but one of the things that would enable him to do (coughs) Would be to invest in a company, like a pharmaceutical company or any other kind of healthcare company, a like new education company, something like that, that has an idea. I'm on the board of a foundation that does a lot of work in social entrepreneurship. And a major problem in the United States has to do with the number of people we have in prison. And many of them have not completed high school or certainly not college. When their sentences are out and they are over and they come out, without that kind of education, it becomes very difficult to get jobs. And then, what do you do? Higher risk of committing crimes and going back in. So, this is a company, it's a for profit that's trying to develop a computer based form of education for prisoners. Again, Many prisons are located not really in population centers. A lot of people may not like to go into a prison, even to teach. So here's an effort to create an innovation, driven by this kind of interest in high kind of technology, to address a social problem. So we've seen a lot of that. All right. We're also seeing a lot of blurring of the sectors. One writer has talked about philanthrocapitalism marriage of business and philanthropy. Bottom of the pyramid is one of the phrases you hear if you looked at the world's income distribution. It looks like a pyramid. Very few people up in the upper reaches. Lots of people in the lower base of the pyramid. If, for example, we could get all those people at the base of the pyramid to purchase or to obtain low-priced computers full of educational software. Would that be a good business investment? What do you think? We've got 3 billion people at the bottom of the pyramid who have no access to computers. Suppose we figured out a way to give them that access. Wouldn't we make a lot of money selling them computers, even if we kept it pretty cheap? That's the bottom of the pyramid. Would we have any social effects? We do it right, we address the problem of the literacy. That's what we mean by philanthropic capitalism. Finding ways to use business principles, but also achieve the soda bottle I talked about. The yeah. So if we address, I mean, specific to your situation, if we address the bottom of the pyramid, then in over a period of... Say 20 years. Won't the pyramid redistribute them? Like well, in relative terms, that's a slightly different issue. It's an issue of relative income distribution. The question you want to ask, though, is if I'm in the bottom of the pyramid today, in 20 years, what's the likelihood I might be higher up? That was more what I was. Oh, okay. Too, like, wouldn't the Well, then it's individuals. So, I mean, there'll always be a bottom of the pyramid. I've never seen a pyramid without a base. Okay. The question is, where is the base, and who's in part of the base? Okay. I guess it's too late in the year to ask this question, but I'll do it anyway. How many of you are wearing a pair of Tom's shoes? You're wearing one. Okay, good. How many of you own a pair of Tom's shoes? Okay, is Tom, I mean, what is, what, what is Tom? Is it a business or a charity? Not really sure. Not really sure. You answered my question. We blurred. Right? Toms, you buy a pair of shoes from Tom or a pair of glasses from Warby Parker and they're going to donate one in a country where people may not have adequate footwear or access to glasses. So we call this a go-go strategy. Get one, give one. And it's a blurry line. We're not really sure. How many of you have ever, over spring break, through confessions time, or maybe winter break, taken a trip, oh, let's pick a country at random, to Honduras or Guatemala or maybe an African country, and part of it, you're out there on the beach, you're sightseeing, but you're going to spend a couple of days maybe doing a habitat build or something like that. Anybody ever do that? We call that volunteerism. Is that charitable or are you just having an interesting and different vacation? I guess both. But I don't know. The ones that I've been on, like, if we were on a beach, like, it was at our place that we stayed at, so we didn't go anywhere, traveled anywhere else except for when we were doing like this. Okay. Yeah, the point is, we've seen blurring of the lines here. They're actually companies, travel companies. You don't want to go to the Riviera and enjoy the casinos and so on, you want to do something socially rewarding you can check with American Express or somebody else, and they'll have a deal for you. The word entrepreneurship comes from a French word that means to manage or undertake, to put together, entrepreneurs, and together. They bring together things that don't go together normally. When we think about an innovation, what we're really talking about is how do we combine things that don't look like they should be combined, where nobody's thought of combining before. So when we talk about social entrepreneurship, we talk about innovation, combining things that didn't go together by leisure shoes to help people in developing countries to address a social problem. Jean-Baptiste Say, was a 19th century French economist, who popularized this concept. And he saw that entrepreneurs take economic resources from an area where they're less productive, and by combining them together, they make the resources more productive. The word Ashoka actually is from Sanskrit, and Ashoka was an ancient Indian prince, pre-Christian era India, and it connotes the idea of self-motivation, that an entrepreneur is a self-starter, we would say today. You see a problem, and you try and do something. Joseph Schumpeter was a, 19th, a 20th century Austrian economist who talked a lot about the importance of entrepreneurship in business. An entrepreneur is a person who drives business change, who takes risks in order to add value. So Henry Ford had no idea if he could mass-produce cars, Steve Jobs, I'm going to show you a prediction in a minute. had no idea that all of you would be buying iPhones. But he took a risk to add value. And part of that as well, a phrase that Schumpeter popularized is entrepreneurs are also destroyers. What do they destroy? Old ideas. The old way of doing things. So all those guys in garages who used to craft cars, Many of them were put out of business once Henry Ford figures out how to mass produce it. A lot of computer companies lost out to Apple because their computers were not as effective. So they're destroyers. They destroy the existing system in order to create something new and better. This is true in social entrepreneurship as well. And if, for example, I came up with a new way of educating prisoners using computer-based technology, what am I destroying? Well, whatever the prison was currently doing, right? Most prisons do have some sort of program to provide education for inmates. If this is successful, they're not going to need to do that. Typically, those would be more costly. You can't reach as many people and so on. So social entrepreneurship does destroys things with the goal of creating new and better. ones. One of the phrases that's most commonly associated is, we're going to change the world. Social entrepreneurs are typically very ambitious and impatient. famous phrase you've probably heard before, that you can give a man a fish, but it's much better to teach a person to fish. For a social entrepreneur, what they want to do is revolutionize the fishing industry. Anybody know what these devices are over here? iPhone. iPhone, but what do they do? How many of you have ever gone fishing? Okay. What's the hardest thing about going fishing? Find the fish. These are fish finders. Okay, they're basically handheld sonar devices. So you're out there on a boat, 20 miles from shore, and you're looking for the one that always gets away, you could have all the capacity of a nuclear submarine in order to find that fish. And so, revolutionize the fishing industry. If, in fact, we now, these were very successful, would it revolutionize the fishing industry? Yeah, it makes it a lot more efficient. Another thing that th- these devices are used for, particularly in countries where you have several. Ports, when you bring your catch in, you sell it, right? You don't usually sit on the boat until the prices go up. How do you know which which of those 10 ports has the best prices today? There's an app for that, exactly right. Fishing boats, as they're approaching the shoreline with their catch, and look at that app and say, gee, if we went a little further north, we're going to get a couple of dollars more per ton or something like that. Innovative, I'm not going to go too much over that. The guru of innovation is a Harvard Business School professor named Clayton Christensen, and he distinguishes between two types of innovations. One is a sustaining innovation. We take the existing system and make it better. Think about your computers. The computing power you have today on your laptop is far more extensive than when laptops first came out. But that's a sustaining innovation because the laptop you use today in a lot of respects looks just like laptops did, maybe they're a bit smaller, that's what we call a sustaining innovation. A disruptive innovation is one that produces a completely different kind of product to address an existing market or problem. So, for example, people are saying that laptops are going to be obsolete. What are we going to use in place of laptops? Tablets. Tablets might be one. What else? Glasses or anything like that. We might use Google Glasses. What else? Virtual reality? Anybody up for a computer chip implant in the brain? Okay, so those would be examples of disruptive innovation. When the first desktop computer was introduced by IBM, what did it disrupt? Anybody know what computers looked like before you had a desktop computer? A room. A room. We'd fill up a good chunk of this room with a computer. Which would you like, that kind of computer or a desktop? Desktop. It disrupted the existing computer business. The Model T disrupted the existing automobile manufacturing business. It changed the nature of the product to produce a better product at lower cost. And again, the same is true in social entrepreneurship as well. Let me give you an example of something that really disrupted a kind of service provision that affected some social problem. So we talked about one a minute ago, pharmaceuticals. An innovation generated by businesses, but with big social impacts that is disruptive. You take a look at healthcare costs, you see a much larger percentage of healthcare costs today are for purposes of purchasing medicines. One of the reasons social entrepreneurship has been of interest is there are lots of concerns about how innovative we've been. Well, we're about to celebrate our 200th anniversary here at Indiana University. If miraculously we brought back the first professor to teach at IU 200 years ago, how much difference would he notice? A lot. A lot? If he was to sit in and, like, teach teacher class, I think he would be surprised at like just the students and I think the teaching methods that a professor might be using. Do or... you have a blackboard? Yeah. Use sure. talk? But I mean, no one really uses the blackboards for anything of in my class. I use the blackboard. Do you use blackboard? Or we might use that blackboard called the computer, right? Yeah, you're right, I don't want to push the point too far, but in many ways, the job of teaching college students in 1820 bears a lot of similarities to the job of teaching college students today, especially in certain fields. And one of the things that interests people in social entrepreneurship is the social sector, as we sometimes call it, innovating enough there much change to address problems. Dead aid. One of the areas where we've seen this is aid to developing countries, and we've been doing, trying to assist countries in poverty, bottom of the pyramid countries, for many years now. And in some cases, the results have been fine. There are some countries, anybody name one? What developing country has been reducing poverty at a very rapid pace? Anybody know? China. India is close second, but other countries, if you look today, despite lots of aid, doesn't seem to have been a lot of growth by the Republic of the Congo, for example. Now, there are lots of reasons for that, but the argument for social entrepreneurship is we've got to find a new way of providing assistance. The results of evaluations of various programs that we've tried have often been disappointing. Educational innovation, and we do say the dropout problem, so on, other things. Not always uh, the results of evaluation seem to suggest not the kinds of effects we'd like to see. Something new has to be done. Scaling refers to the growth. All of us could probably think of, I mean, there's an old saying that every social problem you can think of is being solved someplace in the country. No matter what it is, you could find it being solved someplace in the country. So what's the problem? Well, they're more than that someplace where this problem exists. Now we refer to the word. The use of the word scaling means to take a successful innovation in one place and bring it to other places where it might be useful. Social sector's not been very good at scaling. Lots of small kinds of programs, relatively fewer programs that go to scale, or as one book puts it, billions of drops in millions of buckets. How do you get a good rain that washes away some of And then there are difficulties of financing. We we're talking about incentives for both donors and for fundraisers. Why should we treat nonprofits differently than for-profits? Why not give people incentives for giving money, financial incentives, or for raising it? If you were selling shoes, you'd get a commission on selling shoes. Why not get a commission for raising money for a lovely new building like this? Well, the reason is we have a set of laws and rules for nonprofits, ethical standards, that suggest we shouldn't do that that the motives of supporting social purpose organizations need to one degree or another to be more altruistic than they are in business and their ethical standards as well, it is a strong ethical principle in the fundraising world no commissions the problem of donors getting benefits from their gifts is it looks like, We heard this a lot During the political campaign, it looks like pay to play. All right, I'll give IU a million dollars, but you know, my son or daughter never managed to finish IU. Do you think you could give him or her a degree? Even better story, the law school up on the IUPUI campus is in a building named after a man who died tragically but the gift was made by his wife, who at that point was a law school student. If you were her professor and you knew that she had just committed $5 million to build your building, would you flunk her if she deserved to flunk her? Tough call, you might hear from your dean. Okay, well, we do different <coughs> principles in the nonprofit sector for raising resources than we do in the for-profit and arguably costs a lot more to raise resources than for a for-profit. Maybe we need to change that. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go quickly through this. These are some of the phrases we see in social entrepreneurship on the right versus traditional philanthropic activity. Instead of speaking of donors, we speak of investors. Instead of focusing on operating income, we look at capital investment. Instead of Simply grants, revenue streams consist of the diversity, grants, income, maybe other things, nonprofits versus social ventures. When we look at what a nonprofit does, we look at how it's doing in achieving its mission. We educated more children, whatever, with the new social entrepreneurial efforts. We look at what we call blended return, a mix of social return, financial return, sometimes environmental. Factors With nonprofits, we use limited leverage. It's good to serve the people. We're trying to serve with social enterprises. We're focused more on expanded leverage, have a wider effect. We talk of outputs. What is it you're doing? How many kids have you tutored? How many people with substance abuse have you treated? In social entrepreneurship, we talk about outcomes a lot. Did those kids get educated? Did people with substance abuse overcome their addictions? There are also ecosystems, banks, investors, pension funds, all sorts of sources of funding that we don't normally see in the philanthropic world. We see in social entrepreneurship, different intermediaries, all sorts of different tools. Anybody know what the B Corp is? It was created by a group of IU students. They grew out of a club of students interested in cultivating bees. Why would anybody be interested in that? Bees pay an important part in the environment. If we wound up without any bees, a lot of things would suffer. So they started, I think not far from here, where they had their hives, uh, to improve the cultivation of bees. It was very successful. And so they have now taken this from a student club into a business, and it is a business organized as what is called a B Corporation. And I'm not playing games here. A B Corporation refers to this portion of Indiana's corporate laws, which find this in about 30 other states, that enables a business to be set up in order to get what I've mentioned before, a blended return, part financial, part social. Usually when a business is set up, your principal responsibility is to have a good financial return. With the B Corporation, which has only been in the Indiana law for about a year, you are permitted to organize as a business and get investments, even make some profit, but you have to balance it with social return. Some of the challenges of innovation are pretty hard to recognize. I used to run an organization that was known as a futurist organization. And so I kept a long list of prophecies that proved incorrect. And these are just a couple of them. Thomas Edison, the inventor of the phonograph, said it was of no commercial value. This is my favorite recent one. Mr. Ballmer, the head of Microsoft, when the first iPhone was introduced, nah, not going to do it. And Microsoft, some might say, has been trying to show the truth of that ever since. How many of you have Windows phones? Okay, made my point. The driverless car. There's a prototype. We're going to focus on whether or not this is a social innovation. I've put up some of the pros. Would driverless cars be safer? Arguably. You know, we're going to regulate the speed, so as much as you'd like to hit 70 on the city streets, you can't congestion. Again, we can regulate the distance between cars and so on. Convenience. I'm not quite at this age yet, but it's not too far away. We're driving my car to come lecture in Professor Fulton's class. might be dangerous. Wouldn't it be great if I had a driverless car in my driveway instead? Just take me over to Cedar. I wouldn't even have to park. More realistically, I'm an elderly person, I can't get to the supermarket, all that. The major advocates of driverless cars are not people like you and me, it's the trucking industry. How many of you have driven along some of Indiana highways and seen those 16-wheelers zipping by? What would you think if, when you looked up at the cab, there was nobody in it? (laughs) Well, the trucking industry thinks that's a great idea, why? There's a shortage of truck drivers. What's more, if we didn't need a driver, we could keep those darn things going 24 hours a day. So those are some of the social and business effects. Cons though, most driverless cars anticipate having some sort of override. Your wife is about to have a baby, you go into your driverless car but you don't want to go at 25, 35 miles an hour to get to the hospital. You want to zoom up to 55 if you can. It's 3 in the morning. What the heck? They'll have overrides. Well, of course, I gave an example you might say an override is justified, but if there's an override, maybe use it for other things. I'm late to the football game. Depends on the usage. How many cars do you think are on American highways? A few hundred million, probably. We have 300 million people in the United States, probably over, you know, close to two cars in many cases. It'll take a while before all of them become driverless cars and we recognize the really advantage. I'm running out of time. You can see some of the others. Innovations prompt resistance. Remember, they destroy so people don't often respond to them. Innovation, actually, is a fairly modern idea. There's the Frankenstein monster. Most of you have either seen a movie version, maybe some of you have read the book. Frankenstein was a protest novel. It was written by Mary V. Shelley. It protested the idea that we could innovate to improve in the 19th century well-being by showing what would happen if this innovation kept going. We create a human who it will berserk and destroy us all. Social problems and special problems difficulties with innovation, since they're complex. We don't know whether this change we're making, suppose when I start educating prisoners with my digital device, we will release more if they finish the course, but a large number of them may not stop committing crimes, and will go back in prison and do, do other destructive things. Since the 19th century, we've looked at innovation more positively, is what, what is fueling the social and entrepreneurship movement, but we still have some big problems, sustainability and scale. So, I'm out of time, a lot more to talk about. Those interested, I teach a whole course on this in the spring, and I'm always glad to take emails or respond to questions. So, there's your introduction to social entrepreneurship.